Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, reporter Megan Messerly talks with me about the Delta variant of the COVID-19 virus and what it means for the state. She also talks with several experts in Nevada about the variant. After that, reporter Daniel Rothberg has a discussion about water in Nevada. How is the drought changing the Colorado River and Lake Mead? And what does it mean for the water supply in the Las Vegas Valley? At the end of the show, our new intern Zach Bright joins me to talk about a plan to track Reno's carbon emissions in real time. Reno will be the first city in the U.S. to do so. With the state fully reopened for over a month now, people getting vaccinated and going outside to enjoy the warm weather, at least here in Reno where the temperatures are manageable, we are starting to see an uptick in the number of COVID-19 cases. There's a new mutation or variant of the virus that is being called the Delta variant and it has been spreading through Nevada. I'm joined today by our fearless healthcare reporter, Megan Messerly, to break down everything that we know about the Delta variant and the numbers in Nevada right now. Megan, how's it going? It's going well. We're back to talking about COVID again. All right. Yeah. Back to COVID. Isn't that fun? We thought we were we thought we were through it, but here we are. I'm guessing we'll be talking about this for years to come, even though, even though it feels like things are, are going back to normal. But to start off, what is this Delta variant? You know, how are we seeing it spread in Nevada and across the US and the world? Yeah, it's a good question. So people remember hearing about some of the other variants, the the UK variant, the Brazil variant. These variants are now being classified by by Greek letters, right? So they're now alpha, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, and we're on the delta variant. And this is the variant that emerged in India. Folks sort of heard about the the significant surge in cases there, that this is the variant that was responsible for that surge in India. Obviously, now it is spreading across the world. It is here in Nevada, and it is contributing to a significant um, uptick in cases and hospitalizations in the state. So to just run through the numbers, Really briefly, Nevada is seeing about 429 cases on average each day over the last seven days. That's about double what we were seeing in mid-June, just a little less than a month ago. The test positivity rate, meanwhile, is at 8.24%, which has also doubled since two weeks ago. So we've really seen this dramatic, significant rise of, of cases here in Nevada. Yeah. And how is Nevada faring compared to other places in the United States right now? Yeah, so for a while, Nevada was actually first in the nation for cases per 100,000 over the last seven days. Since then, now we're, we're fourth in the nation. There's uh, three states that are um, ahead of us, but we are one of the top nations for seeing new cases on a, on a per capita basis being uh, reported. So that's obviously not where we want to be. Right now, the situation is worse in Clark County. Washoe County has seen an increase in their, their test positivity rate, but we're not seeing these really sharp increases that we're we're seeing right now in Clark County. I've been talking to folks about why is this? Why is Clark County seeing COVID rates cases being reported compared to other places in the states? There's probably a couple of reasons. One, Clark County does not have a vaccination rate as high as Washoe County. So that probably is playing part of a role. Obviously, there's just more dense living down here in Southern Nevada. And then the big one, obviously, is the tourism industry. Um, whenever you have a lot of people coming into town, there's just a chance they might be bringing something with them. I've talked to some folks who say the issue we're seeing right now, it's sort of locals spreading the virus among locals, but other epidemiologists that I've talked to say 
Okay. You're a city that brings in 40 million visitors a year. Obviously we're still recovering right now from the pandemic, but the more people you bring in from other states, from other countries, there's always going to be that risk of someone bringing in a new variant and just sort of spreading those germs around. I talked to Brian Labus though, an assistant professor at the UNLV School of Medicine. And he told me though, that these hotspots have cropped up throughout the pandemic in different parts of the country and the world. We've seen this over the course of the entire pandemic. There have been cities that have always been hotspots for a couple of weeks, and then some new city takes over as things flare up. Kind of like when a fire is raging, like a forest fire, you're going to find places that have hotspots and places where it slows down. So some of it's just the, the natural transmission based on the, the local conditions. Okay, so I also am curious, a lot of us are vaccinated. I think we're seeing vaccinations tick up, although it's slowing down. If you are vaccinated, though, should you worry about this Delta variant? Yeah, it's it's a good question. So I've been talking to some people this week, both vaccinated and not, who have come down with with COVID-19 in the last uh, couple of weeks. So it's not a zero chance. You know, if you're vaccinated, uh, there is some chance that you will catch COVID. Uh, Obviously, the goal of the vaccination is that you will fall less ill from it. The hope would be that maybe you're asymptomatic. Maybe if you're asymptomatic, you have a lower viral load. You're not uh, transmitting it to other people. If you are symptomatic, the hope is your symptoms are less severe than they might have been had you not been vaccinated. So, So again, the overall goal is reducing the seriousness of this disease, reducing those severe hospitalizations and deaths, but it's not, you know, it's the chance of you getting COVID as a vaccinated individual isn't 0%. But that's not to say that uh, there's, it's not good to get vaccinated because again, it it does reduce that severity of the disease. Brian Labus compared getting vaccinated to, to wearing a seatbelt. It's kind of like wearing a seatbelt. It's not going to stop all people from dying in car accidents, but it really reduces the numbers. And just because some people still die in car accidents doesn't mean everybody should stop wearing their seatbelts. Okay, so I also want to know what the breakdown of the regular virus is compared to this new variant, the Delta variant. We, we, we still kind of have both in the ecosystem right now. Yeah, so it's an interesting question. The Nevada State Public Health Lab actually puts out these weekly reports showing uh, what's spreading. For a while, the, the most common variant in Nevada was the B117, that's the UK variant, or now it's being called the Alpha variant. That that one is still around, but Delta, the Delta variant now is really is really responsible for the majority of, of infections or sequence cases, at least in Nevada. So just looking at the, the cases that the State Public Health Lab has sequenced, the Delta variant was responsible for nearly 60% of cases over the last 14 days. Last week, looking at the 14-day period, it was only 46%. So we have seen these numbers uh, increase and and pretty quickly. So the Delta variant really became the the dominant strain here in Nevada very rapidly. Just to give a breakdown county by county, uh, the Delta variant is is responsible for 56% of sequence cases in Carson City, uh, 54% of sequence cases in Clark County, and 46% of sequence cases in Washoe County. So that just gives you a sense that it's about at that 50% or more mark in, in those counties here. I didn't pull the numbers from, from rural Nevada. Several rural counties, though, have reported cases of the Delta variant as well. The big issue here is that the Delta variant is really good at spreading. It's much more transmissible than the original strain of the virus and even some of the other variants that we've seen. I talked to Dr. Mark Pandori, who's the head of the Nevada State Public Health Lab this week, and he described the variant spreading right now as, quote, Olympian viruses. These are the ones that have competed and competed and competed and are now the, the most proficient at infecting people. And so if you're not vaccinated, you're facing the toughest of the tough when it comes to this virus. 
Okay, yeah, so we've been talking about how how rapidly this has been spreading. Is, is this a surprise? Is this something that we expected to see? Yeah, I talked to Dr. Pandori a little bit about this, and he did express a little bit of surprise with how quickly the Delta variant has become the dominant strain in Nevada. The speed with which it did it, which was really maybe the root of your question, has mm-hmm. been a surprise. And I think we're headed towards it being you know, just, you know, if I say nearly monolithic, I don't want to say that because mm-hmm. it's going to change again. And yeah. then, you know, but, but like in the last two weeks, I think it, it it's in four weeks, it's continuously gone up over, over 10% every week. I just want to talk about reopening. Um, you, you know, we're, as of June 1st, we are back to 100% reopen in Nevada. Um, again, we were talking about lots of people getting vaccinated, but but has reopening the state and loosening these restrictions had an impact on the, the greater spread of the variant and the virus as a whole? Yeah, this is actually one of the biggest issues right now. Just looking at the numbers of vaccinated folks right now, about 50% of the state's population is fully or partially vaccinated, and about 50% is totally unvaccinated. Now, about 50% does include uh, a section of, of children who are not yet eligible for the vaccine based on their age. But the problem is that things are really open right now. There's no capacity limits. There's no social distancing. If you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. Uh, and if you are vaccinated, that's you know pretty okay. Again, we've talked about the, the vaccines are still offering protection against, against the, the Delta variant that's spreading right now. But part of the problem, and you know, I'm sure you've seen this in your daily life as well, uh, w- when you go to the store, it is not 50% masked, 50% unmasked, right? You can sort of see that um, there's probably more folks out there not wearing masks than are, are vaccinated. And that's the biggest issue here is this virus is really uh, transmissible. The Delta variant is really transmissible. And you don't have any of those social distancing or any of those protocols that we were taking a year ago. So you have a virus that's better at spreading and better at infecting people and a lot of unvaccinated people out in the world without those protections to keep them from getting the virus. A lot of people vaccinated and unvaccinated have been acting as if the pandemic is over when it's the virus is still out there, unfortunately. Uh, and here's what Brian Labus had to say about that. Well, I think when we reopen things, people still should have been taking those steps to protect themselves because the virus was still spreading. And unfortunately, people basically acted like everything was over and stopped doing anything to protect themselves. So really, uh, they need to go back to doing those things that that will help protect them from exposures and considering that this disease is still spreading in the community and they can't just act like it isn't. We know that viruses mutate. Are, are scientists watching this right now? What, what are they looking out for in this mutation? Yeah, so we expect any virus that's spreading to go through some sort of mutation. So you think about the, the very first form of COVID that was out there. Now it's started to adapt, right? It wants to get really good at spreading. It wants to be more transmissible. And if you just think about it, those more transmissible variants are going to sort of crowd out the other less transmissible variants and just be better at infecting people. On the other hand, viruses are, are because they're trying to spread, they don't want to kill people before they're spread. So sometimes we do see viruses mutate to become less deadly because they're sort of killing their hosts. They're not able to proliferate and spread to more uh, potential hosts. And so we generally sort of look out for that, or that's what scientists look out for when they're, you know, when they're watching to see how viruses evolve. So it's kind of a wait and see situation right now. We know the Delta variant's more transmissible. The literature is sort of still evolving on whether it will end up being more deadly or not. Probably a little bit more evidence is, is needed to, to say whether that will be the case or not. But it's something that scientists are watching closely because obviously, um, you know, if a virus does mutate to be really transmissible, but less severe, that that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, no one wants to get sick. 
you don't want to deal with the long-term consequences of, of COVID or long COVID that some people experience. But, but the goal here is we're really trying to prevent those really serious illnesses and obviously those deaths. Yeah. One thing that we talked about earlier was we have a 50, about 50% vaccination rate, but you don't see that in the stores, right? You don't see that in, in terms of masks wearing. If you are vaccinated, should you still be wearing a mask or should you consider wearing a mask? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question, but the World Health Organization has been recommending more masking. We saw LA County recommend more masking. Uh, Nevada has said just follow the CDC protocols right now, which is that unvaccinated people don't need to wear masks. I mean, at this point, it's it's a personal choice, right? The, the hope is that the vaccines are offering protection to folks uh, so that if they catch the virus, they're not going to get super sick from it. And if they catch it, they're not going to be spreading it to more people. The issue here is really for the unvaccinated folks. You know, experts are urging people to take the same precautions they were taking before if they haven't been vaccinated. Like I said before, there aren't any of those protections in place on a community-wide level. Unvaccinated people are out there mixing with other unvaccinated people, no social distancing. This is a really transmissible variant. And so there's the, the danger of catching COVID or the likelihood of us catching COVID is, is just greater. I talked to Dr. Nancy Diao, the Division Director of Epidemiology and Public Health Preparedness at the Washoe County Health District. And, and here's what she recommended. I think if you're vaccinated, which is going by what CDC has recommended with removing of masks, that you can find some sort of normal back in your life now. You can participate in a lot of activities which you weren't able to do before. But with the unvaccinated population, I would definitely recommend that you have to wear a mask. We always assess our risk when we do different activities. If it's sunny outside, you go outside, you put on sunscreen, it would be, most people would put on sunscreen. It would be pretty unprudent of you to just walk outside and get yourself burned and probably get skin cancer. But it's the same thing as wearing masks. If you're in a situation where you know you're vulnerable, why would you not wear a mask? Okay, and then just just to wrap up, there's been a lot of talk about getting vaccinated uh, to protect yourself and protect your family. But are there any bigger implications to the vaccination effort right now? Yeah, it's a good question. Part of the problem is that every time the virus is transmitted to a new person, there's some chance of mutation, right? When those uh, genetic codes are getting copied over, there are these random mutations. And that is what over time becomes these new variants that we see. The more unvaccinated people that we have who are vulnerable to the virus, the more chances of mutations that could make the virus even better at debating the vaccine. This is how Dr. Mark Pandori put it. It's a very difficult situation because as long as you get a, you're not vaccinated and you're getting infected, or even if you are vaccinated, you know, and you somehow get infected, it's just going to perpetuate this virus and perpetuating it leads to its further evolution. So while these current lineages may not be much of an issue um, for us, if you're vaccinated, we could be creating a, a variant eventually that would be a more serious issue for us. All right. Well, Megan, uh, thank you so much for kind of going over all this. I know it was a lot. It's a lot kind of changing right now with COVID, especially, you know, with reopening vaccinations, all these variants. But but I, I know you're keeping on top of all of it. And if you want to read more of Megan's stuff, she's got coronavirus contextualized on our website, as well as lots of tweeting with the numbers every day as well. And we still have the tracker on our website as well. So, Megan, thank you so much for talking with me today. Yep. Thanks for having me. With Lake Mead falling to its lowest level since the 30s, a severe drought sweeping across the western U.S., and climate change ravaging a river system that supports tens of millions of people across the southwest, including Las Vegas, the region is facing a pretty substantial challenge when it comes to managing its water. I'm joined today by the Indies environmental reporter Daniel Rothberg to talk about all of this. Daniel, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. 
And and so for the first question I have, I wanted to just ask about Lake Mead. You know, what does it mean for water to be this low right now? Well, I think it's really significant. The Colorado River Basin crosses through seven states and and goes into Mexico. And all the states and Mexico have been working on drought contingency plans and shortage agreements for when the lake dropped to these low reservoir levels for years now. So it's not completely unexpected. But the rate at which the lake has dropped is, I think, caught a lot of people by surprise, to be perfectly honest about it. This winter, we had a a below normal but somewhat decent snowpack in the Rockies. But because the soil was so dry, a, a very small amount of that snowpack actually made it into Lake Powell, the reservoir above Lake Mead, and in turn, into Lake Mead. So so that's really one of the reasons driving the the low reservoir level and the, the sort of grim record that we hit last month of the lowest reservoir condition since the lake was filled. And of course, that is being driven in part by what we're seeing on a larger scale, which are warmer temperatures and drier conditions associated with a changing climate. Yeah. And so with these low levels, I mean, there's kind of some shocking photos. You, you, you look at Lake Mead right now. I mean, with it so low, people can't even get their boats in the in the lake. Is this having an impact on, on, on regular people like day to day in Las Vegas right now? Yeah. Well, on a day to day basis, unless you are out at, at Lake Mead all the time on a boat and recreating, you're, you're not going to have that big of an impact in terms of the actual water that's coming out of your pipe. The Southern Nevada Water Authority has managed water in such a way that Las Vegas is using less than its Colorado River allocation consumptively. It's The math is a little complicated because Las Vegas recycles a portion of its indoor water and sends it back to the lake. But as a whole portion of the pie, you could say Las Vegas is already using under its Colorado River allocation. So what's going to happen in probably the next couple of weeks, it's, it's all but likely that the federal water managers that control Hoover Dam and the lake are going to declare the first ever official shortage on the river. And that's going to sort of kickstart cuts for Arizona and Nevada. But because of what I said earlier, the the fact that Nevada, the Southern Nevada Water Authority cumulatively is using less than its allocation, those cuts are going to have a minimal impact on turning on the tap. That said, this is not a one-year issue. And this is not an issue, unfortunately, that science and modeling tells us is going away anytime soon. So when you ask me about day-to-day life, I think that the Southern Nevada Water Authority is working really hard to educate customers that we, we live in a desert climate and we're, we are facing some serious drought conditions. Everybody on the Colorado River is going to be living with less water under climate change. We've already seen the Southern Nevada Water Authority with, with a law that was passed in the legislative session a couple of months ago to require the removal of non-functional or decorative turf from medians and from business parks and things like that. In terms of turning on your tap, people are going to be okay, even with this shortage. But there is going to be a kind of double down focus on conservation. And you will see likely the impact of that in terms of how much grass and irrigated landscaping there is because irrigated landscaping, exterior landscaping is one of the largest uses of water. 
Yeah, I, I'm also curious, you know, you've talked about Arizona and California and Colorado and, and Nevada. We're, we're all pulling from from the same river, right? And I was kind of thinking about this. It, it, I think it's interesting in your in your in your weekly newsletter, you mentioned you know, we're, we're working with those states. Does it feel and I'm not sure if you have a sense of this or not. Does it feel like competitive almost like Nevada's trying to get more water than California or, or, or Arizona's trying to steal our water? Or is it more of a collaborative effort? Yeah. I think to answer your question, there are moments on the Colorado River when when I think the states have legitimate disagreements. And sometimes those disagreements play out not between California, Arizona and Nevada, but between the two divisions, the upper basin and the lower basin, the Colorado River. But I think for the most part, there is an effort to at least begin in a place of collaboration because frankly, there really is just not that much time to get some of these deals done and to really think critically about our relationship with this water resource going into into a future that is going to be drier and where there is going to be less water to go around. I think that people don't want to fight and end up in court where litigation could stretch out for years, where they might not have as much of a say as if they are able to kind of do this sort of collaboration and negotiation. So I I think it doesn't always break down by state. Sometimes it break down, breaks down by sector, agriculture versus cities, upper versus lower basin. But I do think there is more of a focus on collaboration than not. And I guess the last thing that I want to ask is just with this ongoing drought, what is something that you or me or, or anyone listening to this can, can do to kind of help mitigate or, or, or deal with this, this drought that's pretty ongoing? I would say that there are, are sort of two things, and I, th- I think they're somewhat related. The, f- the first is that with the drought, I, I really hope that people spend just a little time understanding, especially if they live in a city and are are more disconnected about where their water comes from, understanding a little bit about where their water is coming from. And no matter where you live in Nevada, whether you live in Las Vegas and rely on the Colorado River, whether you rely on the Truckee River, or whether you rely on the Carson River, you are part of a larger watershed. In or outside of drought, that water is already stretched thin because we live in such an arid region. And and that's not just true in Nevada, that's true in other Western states as well. And I think that with a better understanding on an individual level of where our water is coming from, we might be able to make choices as individuals about conserving water and about not using as much because the truth is that we are taking water out of the system and it's, it's important, it serves a use, But I think we all have a responsibility to be conscious about how we're using our water. And that's the second thing I was going to say, which is conservation, conservation, conservation. Again, no matter what water system you're in, I think that it it is an important thing to be cognizant of where we live, the climate that we live in, and to live within our means as communities and cities. Well, Daniel, I think we'll, we'll leave it there for now, but thank you for, for all this important reporting that you've been doing on the situation at Lake Mead and the continued drought that we've been having here in the state and on the Colorado River. So to hear more from Daniel, you can subscribe to his newsletter, Indian Environment, which comes out every Thursday. Daniel, thank you so much. Thank you.
All right, and so shifting from climate change in Southern Nevada to climate change in Northern Nevada, I am joined by our newest intern, Zach Bright. Zach, how's it going? It's going well. It's uh, really hot out, but besides that. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're from Florida, so I'm sure you're kind of used to the heat, but the, the, the dryness might be a little bit of a shock, huh? Yeah, moisturizing is something I have to do all over my body now, and still getting <laughs> used to that, so. Yeah. Well, anyway, you covered an event recently, and uh, we're going to talk about that. So, you know, Reno and Las Vegas are some of the fastest warming cities in the United States. In a report from Climate Center, an independent organization of scientists and journalists that do reporting and research on climate change, they, you know, these two cities are just heating up a lot and they're doing really fast. And Reno recently announced that it will be monitoring its carbon emissions uh, in real time. It's one of the first cities in the United States to do this. And Zach, you, you went to the announcement event with the governor and the mayor. Today, I'm proud to announce that the state of Nevada will become the first state, the first state in the country to track our carbon emissions in real time in an effort to ultimately reduce our carbon footprint. Tell me a little bit about the event and what this whole this whole thing is. Yeah, I mean, I would say this is pretty huge news. Reno is going to be the first city to track in real time and on demand their greenhouse gas emissions and also their energy usage. What really sets this apart from cities that normally track their emissions on an annual basis is that Reno is going to be able to see hour by hour, minute by minute, what is consuming the most energy, what is putting off the most carbon, and they'll be able to make changes according to that kind of stuff. And so their policy can be really responsive. That's a lot of what they talked about at the event. You had the governor, you had the mayor of Reno, and then you also had the Washoe County chair all come together in this bipartisan fashion because, you know, governor is a Democrat, mayor's a nonpartisan, and the Washoe County chair is a Republican. But they all kind of agreed and came together with this group called Ledger 8760. And that's kind of what they're aiming to do is really get that real-time information to make policy decisions okay. that they think are best suited for the city. So, Cool. Tell, tell me a little bit more about this Ledger 8760. This is a, an organization that the city is partnering with to help real-time tracking? Yeah. So Ledger 8760, as far as I know, is actually a Reno-based company. And what they do is help do that real live tracking. And so what they can do is take information that the city already has and help really determine where output is coming from. Energy emissions tracking and carbon tracking can be pretty complicated, but the way they broke it down to me is that there's three general buckets um, where you can kind of track emissions in. So first you have direct emissions from something like driving that comes straight out of your vehicle. Then you have electric grid related emissions. So if you turn on a light in your home, that comes from the electric grid. And then you have off grid emissions. These are indirect emissions like flying. If you're taking a flight from one place to another, it's not necessarily you know just coming out of Reno, it's coming out of the plane across the whole flight. And that's your third bucket. And so Ledger 8760 finds a way to you know compile this all together, make it so that a city can actually make use of that. In the past, what they've done is mostly worked in the private sector. And so they've worked for different companies who, you know, want to track their emissions to make changes as they see fit. And so this is the first time the company is actually going to be working with a public entity, in this case, the city. So, Is there a reason that this isn't statewide yet? Is it just kind of Reno's small enough that it can kind of be done on a trial basis? And then is there a plan to grow this to, the, to this whole state? Yeah. So the way they described it to me is they said that Reno really has an environmental ethos when the country left the Paris Climate Agreement under the Trump administration. Reno was a city that said, you know, we're going to stay in it, even if the country's not going to stay in it. And we're going to really make sure that we are working to cut our emissions and be a greener city. And so that's one of the reasons why 
Ledger 8760 kind of approached Reno, they saw it as a place that would actually be open to this kind of tracking method. And also across all three levels of government, the city, the county, and the state government, you have people in leadership who agree that climate change is something that needs to be tackled. And that was something that really helped make this possible. They not only see it as a threat to their communities, but they also see it as an economic opportunity. And that's kind of this twofold pathway that they're trying to go forward on. So. Tell me a little bit more about that, that economic opportunity. You know, we, we, when you think about tracking data, you don't think about like the a growing economy. You just kind of think about like, well, here's some more numbers we have. What are, how are those numbers leading to more jobs or, or more economic growth? Yeah. So from the data, what the city and county and state government can do is see where they can open up more jobs. If the data shows that solar power is, you know, something that the city needs to improve on even more, then that could lead to installation jobs and service-based jobs in that regard. But if the city says, oh, we need to really make sure we're retrofitting our buildings so they're using the most energy efficient technologies available, then those kinds of jobs will be opened up as well. So it really depends on what the data is telling the different levels of government and what the different levels of government choose to do based on that data that could lead to more economic growth. Cool. Well, Zach, thank you so much for doing the reporting and, and welcome aboard. We're, we're glad to have you here. Uh, you, you, you drove here from Florida, like I mentioned earlier, and, and we're just excited to have you on the team and for uh, to see what you're going to be reporting on next. So thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Megan Messerly, Brian Labus, Dr. Mark Pandori, Nancy Dow, Daniel Rothberg, and Zach Bright for being on the show this week. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Subscribe to our newsletter, Soundcheck, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, best Lego builder guides, personal injury lawyer suggestions, or whatever else you want to tell us about at joey at the or jacob at the Reno Band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify or Bandcamp. There was additional music in today's episode from Lance Conrad and myself. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Every place is a little bit different. Whoa. Yeah. You feeling that? No. Oh my God, really? Sorry, it's a pretty big earthquake. Okay, I felt that a little bit. But... I'm still feeling it. Holy cow. It's still okay. I think I'm good. Whew. That's like, that startled me. Sorry. Huh. Well, that was fun.